Let's turn, please, in our Bibles to the book of Romans, and it's the eighth chapter, the book of Romans, chapter eight, and we're going to read from the 26th verse of the chapter. Let's follow along from Romans 8, verse 26, reading down to the end of the chapter. Familiar words, and yet if we're honest words that we can never really fully grasp or fathom, we can only scratch the surface of a great chapter like Romans 8. So we're going to commence our reading at verse 26 of Romans 8. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Of God, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also glorified. Or them whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we know God will bless the reading of his precious word to each and every heart for his own sake and for his own glory. Romans chapter 8. And verse 31 is our motto text for 2023. There should be a little car there in the table of the church, the calendar in the back and the text in the front. Our motto text for this year, Romans 8, 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, 
who can be against us. Let's pray together. Let's seek the Lord. And do pray that the Spirit of God will apply the Word of God to our hearts. And that God will speak to each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we cast ourselves at Thy feet. We acknowledge, as the psalmist did, I am poor and needy. And yet the Lord thinketh upon me. We pray today that the Spirit of God will open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of Thy law. Open our ears, Lord, to hear Thy voice. And open our hearts to receive of Thy blessing. Pray, Lord, for the help of heaven. We acknowledge our great need of the Spirit of God to come. And therefore, Lord, I pray for a fresh cleansing upon my spirit, soul, and body. And I pray that the blessed Spirit of God will take this jar of clay and fill me, and also that Thou wilt hide me behind the cross. Glorify Thy Son. Encourage every child of God. Speak to those who do not know Thee. And may everything today just tie together and dovetail together for the honor and glory of our great God and Savior. We pray in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. The longest mountain range on earth is underwater. It is known as the Mid-Ocean Trench, and it circumnavigates the globe like the seam in a tennis ball. It's some 40,000 miles long. It's hard for us to conceive of such a great mountain range because we cannot see it, although nevertheless it is real. And it is there. And then the longest continental mountain range is the Andes. That just goes down the west coast of South America, five and a half thousand miles long. Followed by the Rocky Mountains in North America, three thousand miles long. Some people believe that the Alps, the Pyrenees, or the Sierra Nevada are some of the most beautiful mountain ranges in the world. But the tallest mountain range on earth are the Himalayas. Fourteen individual peaks, each of them over 8,000 meters, eight kilometers in height. K2, and then, of course, the world's tallest mountain in the Himalayas, Mount Everest itself. 8,849 meters, or in old money, 29,032 feet in height. I believe, dear friends, today that each book in the Bible is like an individual mountain range of spiritual truth. The book of Psalms is the longest. I suppose different people have their ideas as to what mountain range in Scripture might be the most beautiful. But it's my conviction today that the book of Romans is perhaps the highest mountain range in Scripture. And if that is true, we could say that Romans chapter 8 is like the Mount Everest in the book of Romans. It's impossible for us today to fully scale its heights. The book of Romans, and especially this eighth chapter, brings us into the heavenlies. Somebody entitled Romans chapter 8 as the chapter of the Spirit. And verse number 31 is perhaps the key text in Romans chapter 8 because it ties what has gone before in the first 30 verses to what follows on 
in the remaining portion of the Scriptures. What shall we say then to these things? Paul is looking back, and he brings the first part of the book of Romans to a conclusion in verse number 31, and then that ties the rest of the chapter, and we might even say the rest of the book together. And so we can certainly say that Romans is like a mountain range of spiritual truth. Romans chapter 8 is like a Mount Everest within the book. And Romans chapter 8 and verse number 31 is like standing upon a mountain peak, looking over the whole plan of God's salvation for our lives, standing in awe of the great work of Christ himself upon the cross. What shall we say then to these things? That's how the text begins. And of course, that causes us to ask another question, what things, what things is Paul speaking about? Well, I believe he's speaking about the first part of the book, chapters 1 through to chapter 7, speak about God's redemptive purpose for his people in Jesus Christ. The first seven chapters of the book of Romans unfold God's great plan of salvation revealed in the gospel. And Paul looks back over those seven chapters, over those other mountain peaks, and says to himself, what shall I say to those things? What shall my response be to God's great rescue plan executed by Jesus Christ upon the cross? How can I respond? And then if we bring it a little bit closer to home, maybe he's thinking more explicitly about the first verses in chapter 8 all of these verses that speak about the great work of the Spirit of God in the hearts and lives of God's people. What shall I say then to these things? Not only has Christ died for me, but God has planted the Spirit of the living God within me. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. God has sent the Spirit into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us. What shall I say to these things? Paul almost sounds like he's somehow out of his depth whenever he considers the great things that the Savior has done for him on the cross and the great things that the Spirit of God is doing within him. But if we look at our text in its immediate context, we find it on the backdrop of verses 29 and 30. And we see there God's great eternal purposes for his people from eternity past to eternity future. Moreover, whom he did foreknow, verse 29, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. And Paul realizes that there was never a time in, in the history of the world or in eternity past or in eternity future whenever God Almighty was not thinking upon him. He chose me from before the foundation of the world, and he will love me forever. And there's coming a day whenever I will be glorified, and there's never been a time whenever God did not love me. And there will never be a time whenever God will not love me. 
And he loves me even now, before I'm glorified and made perfect in holiness. And he stands in awe on this mountain peak of Scripture and says, What shall I say then to these things? And in response to that question that he asks at the beginning of verse number 31, for the rest of the chapter he asks another five questions. We see another question in verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I believe that in verse number 31, whenever Paul says, If God be for us, Who can be against us? He's tying together the whole book of Romans in this great question that speaks to us of the divine favor of God. If God be for us, who can be against us? I've chosen this for our motto text for this incoming year. We do not know what we will face in the days and weeks and God willing, the months that lie ahead. But every child of God can have this assurance. God is for us. And if God is for us, and He is, then who or what can possibly be against us? Just two simple thoughts, two simple points that I want to leave with you from this great text of Scripture. First of all, you have here an assurance of divine favor an assurance of divine favor if God be for us. Now, make no mistake about it. That little word, if, is not expressive of doubt or uncertainty. Sometimes whenever we use the word if, it's joined to a question mark, and we wonder if God is really for us. But Paul is using the word if here in the affirmative sense. He's using it the way we would use the word since or because if God is for us or since God is for us or because God is for us, who can be against us? Paul has come to a place in his life where he is absolutely convinced, absolutely certain, absolutely assured God in heaven, the almighty, everlasting omnipotent, unchangeable God, the eternal God is for me. He's not against me. He's not independent of me. He's not indifferent towards me. But rather God Almighty is for me. And every child of God can say the same thing. God is for me. The assurance of divine favor. Now, how can Paul be so sure that God is for him? And how can you, in 2023, how can you be so sure, so certain, that this invisible and yet this immense God is for you? You cannot see him. You cannot hear his audible voice. You cannot reach out and touch him with your hands. He's an invisible God. We haven't seen him with our naked eye. But by faith we believe that God is. 
and by faith we have trusted Jesus Christ. But yet, how can we be sure? Do you ever struggle with doubts? Do you ever wonder, does God really love me? Do you ever wonder, is God really for me? Do you ever wonder, is God really with me? Or am I just hoping and imagining and trusting in things that I'm not really sure or certain of? Well, Paul had an assurance of divine favor. Fanny Crosby could say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I believe there are three things, three things that convince Paul God is not only for me, but God is for us. He's for all that have been redeemed by precious blood. He's for every child of God. He's for every Christian. How can he have this assurance? Well, first of all, the promise of God assures us. The book of Romans is full of exceeding great and precious promises. In fact, the whole Bible itself is full of exceeding great and precious promises. Charles Haddon Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers compiled 365 of God's great promises towards his people in a little devotional volume, and he called that little book the checkbook for the bank of faith. And every promise that God has given us is like a check, and God is able to grant us all of the merits and blessings and dividends of his promises. E.M. Bounds once said that the promises of God are God's golden fruit, and we pluck them with the hand of prayer. And the Word of God is full of such great promises and assurances that God is for us. The psalmist was assured of it. In Psalm 56, verse number 9, the psalmist said, When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back, this I know, for God is for me. This I know, because God is for me. And then in Psalm 118, verse 6 and verse number 7, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. The prophet Isaiah had this great assurance as well, and he gives us such promises as Isaiah chapter 41 and verse number 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And God is saying again to his people, I am for you. I'm not against you. I'm with you, and I'm for you, and I'm behind you, as he said to Moses, underneath and round about are the everlasting arms. And then through the prophet Jeremiah, God says to the nation of Israel, who we need to remind ourselves in Jeremiah's day, were far away from God. They were backslidden. They were cold at heart. They were not performing well at all as believing people. And they were facing 70 years of captivity. And nevertheless, even in the midst of their backsliding and the chastening hand of God, God says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you 
unexpected end. And then whenever the children of Israel were in captivity in Babylon, God raised up the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel again says to a people who are now under the chastening hand of God, Ezekiel 36 and verse number 9, God says, Behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you. Ye shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply men upon you. They thought that all hope was gone. They had lost out with God. They'd sinned against Him. And now they're reaping the consequences of their sins and their backsliding. Maybe thinking God has forgotten. God has left us. God has erased us. God has wiped us out. And He'll maybe start with somebody else. But God says, listen, behold, I am for you and I will turn on to you. Dear friends, even whenever we are backslidden, even whenever we are far from God, even when we're not doing well as believers, and we should always, of course, be striving, but even whenever we're at our absolute worst as Christian people, God is still for us. And faith is simply taking God at His word. Faith is simply believing and receiving and resting upon the promises of God. Now, folks, we don't always have elated feelings. Sometimes our emotions are not mountaintop emotions. Sometimes we find ourselves in the valley. Hands up if you struggle with guilt. Hands up if you sometimes struggle with self-loathing and a lack of self-worth. And you look at yourself even as a believer and you feel so weak and so frail and so small and you've let the Lord down and you're not full of faith or full of joy or full of hope or full of expectancy. And you maybe struggle to read your Bible and the desire for prayer is not what it should be. And then you beat yourself up even more and you say, how could God possibly love me? How could God possibly be for me? Our emotions can change. Our feelings can change. Our motivation might not be what it should be. But yet the promises of God stand in the Bible like Everests for us. Like mountains of truth. They're steadfast. They're unmovable. And the unchangeable God has given us these unchanging promises. As Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, that the Bible itself is a more sure word of prophecy. He was speaking about the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the glory of Christ. He heard a voice from heaven. And yet, whenever it comes to the written Word of God, he says, I've got something more sure, more certain than a great vision or an audible voice or an elated mountaintop experience. I've got the Word of God, the promises of God. And Paul surely is thinking about the promises of God, and therefore he has an assurance of divine favor. The promises of God assure us of his favor toward us. But then there's also the proof of the cross work of Christ. God not only promises his divine favor, but God proves his divine favor. The scriptures of truth promise the believer that God is with them. But the cross of Jesus Christ proves that God is for us. The promises are given to us, yes, and we thank God for them. But the cross of Jesus Christ proves 
that God is for us. Now, in the Bible, God declares that He loves us. But at the cross, God proves or demonstrates that He loves us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God commendeth His love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the book of Jeremiah, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then all of those years and centuries later, on a cruel cross outside of Jerusalem, God proves, this is how much I love you. I'm sending my son to die for you. And if God promises that he's for us, the cross as well proves that God is for us. Look at Romans 8 again. Look at verse number 32. Paul has just said, If God be for us, who can be against us? And then immediately after that, to drive the point home, he brings us again to the cross. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Let those words sink into your soul this morning. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Child of God this morning, God Almighty has given you the greatest gift that it was possible for him to give. Jesus Christ has made the greatest sacrifice that that it was possible for him to make. The Son of God has displayed His love in a way that He could have done no other way in going to a cross and yielding up His life. God spared not His own Son. And if God has given us the greatest gift of all, surely God will give us the lesser gifts. If God has given us the very best that He could have, anything below that is a lesser blessing. And God says, I've given you the very best. And I'll give you with him freely all things that you need. I'll give you all of the grace that you need. I'll give you all of the help that you need. I'll give you all of the presence of God that you need. I'll give you all of the help that you need for every trial. And you look back to the cross. You say, God has given me his son. Deliver him up for me. And if God has given me Christ, then God will give me everything else that I need. I wonder today, can I ask you, have the benefits of the cross been applied to you? Because somebody who's not a believer cannot truly say that God is for me. Not until you come to Christ and trust Him as your Savior, respond to the call of God and come as a sinner to the cross, can you say that God is for me? Can I ask you today, have you been justified or your sins forgiven? Can you say today in the depths of your soul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me and my faith and trust today is in Jesus Christ? What a place to start a new year. The first Lord's Day of 2023. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing for you to give your heart to Jesus Christ, to trust him as your Savior, to say yes to God and to receive of his love and say, I'm going to trust Christ For 2023, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm going to trust Him for the rest of my life and for all eternity. And now I receive Him by faith. And then there's another thing that assures us of God's divine favor. Not just the promise of Scripture. Not just the proof of the cross. 
but also the providence of God in our lives. Verse number 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And has God not shown that he is for us in so, so many practical ways? Sometimes we, we struggle about our doubts, about our unbelief, about our lack of faith, our lack of knowledge, our lack of understanding. And yet there's a lovely incident way back there in the book of Judges whenever the parents of Samson, Manoah and his wife had a visitation, the angel of the Lord came and began to speak to them. Uh, Manoah understood that this was a manifestation of the very presence of God incarnate, and he's spoken into your hearts. And all of a sudden, Manoah is afraid. And we read in Judges chapter 13 and verse 21, the angel of the Lord did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. And Manoah felt that there's no future for us now. We have somehow seen God and and his faith was shaken and his faith was rattled. He felt now God is against us and we're going to die and we're not going to live another day and this is the end of the road. But Manoah had a wise wife and she gave her husband good counsel and she said to her husband in verse 23, if the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at her hands. Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would us at this time have told us such things as these. And what she's saying is this, the very fact that God has answered our prayers, the very fact that God has spoken to our hearts, the very fact that God has blessed us thus far, the very fact that God has shown us kindness and grace and mercy is evidence that God is for us. And dear friends, as you look back at the year that has gone by with all of its trials and difficulties and all of its hardships, has God not answered prayer? Has God not given you grace? Has God not led you safe thus far? Has God not spoken to your heart through His Word? Has God not answered the prayers of God's people on your behalf? Has God not brought you to the light of another year? And surely the providence of God And the proof of the cross and the promises of God's Word give us the assurance of divine favor. Notice the second part of our text in closing, the victory of divine favor. If or because or since God is for us, who can be against us? Who can really be against us? All of these omnipotent powers and influences and things that happen— How can they really be against us if the omnipotent, almighty God is for us? The text is showing God's people what is one of the many blessings associated with having favor with God, that nothing and no one can be against us. Now, many things and many people, perhaps, can be against us in principle and also in purpose, But nobody can stand against the child of God and ultimately be victorious. Sometimes we're like Jacob and we say, 
all these things are against me. But if we could only see that between us and all the things that seem to be against us, there's an omnipotent God, and underneath and round about are the everlasting arms of omnipotence, we would truly realize that none of these things can be against us and triumph over us. And at the end of the chapter in verse 35 and in verse number 38 and 39, Paul gives a long list of things that certainly were against him in his Christian life and experience. They were against him in purpose. They were against him in principle. But they did not prevail against him. In verse 35, he gives a list of temporal possibilities. He begins by asking, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation. And that word tribulation denotes troubles that afflict us, especially because of the gospel. Jesus Christ our Lord said in John 16, in the world ye shall have tribulation. Paul speaks about tribulation. Then he speaks about distress. The word distress means anguish. It literally means to be in straits, to be in a narrow, confined place between a rock and a hard place. And then he speaks about persecution. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And make no mistake about it, this world has got no real time for the Christian. And in the world we might experience tribulation. In the world, we might experience distress. In the world, we might experience persecution. Then he speaks about famine, literal famine perhaps, maybe a spiritual famine as well. Didn't Amos speak about a famine of hearing the Word of God? Then he speaks about nakedness. Then he speaks about peril. The word means jeopardy, being endangered because of the preaching of the gospel. Then as well, he speaks about the sword. And the first time the word sword is mentioned in the New Testament is whenever Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said to the leaders and the Roman soldiers and the chief priests, you come to me with swords. And Paul was a man that experienced all of these things and more. He says in 2 Corinthians and chapter number 11, he speaks about stripes, labors, prisons, deaths, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, journeys, perils, weariness, painfulness, watching, hunger, thirst, fasting, cold, nakedness, the care of the churches. He experienced all of those things that he writes about in the book of Romans. And he acknowledges that these things might sever human relationships, but they can never separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse number 38 of Romans 8, Paul gives a list of spiritual entities. Verse 35, temporal possibilities. Verses 38 and 39, spiritual entities. He speaks about death and life. Death with all of its terrors. Life with all of its trials. Then he speaks about angels principalities 
and powers. He spoke about those in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places, against the rulers of the darkness of this present age. Satan and all his men, he says, they might be against us, but God is for us. Things present or things to come. Things we are presently facing. Things that we may face in the year that lies ahead. Height nor depth, the height of delight, the depth of despair. Nor any other creature. That covers all bases. Paul says none of these things, temporal or spiritual, none of them can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so what Paul is saying in verse number 31, if God be for us, then nothing and no one can possibly be against us. Even the things that seem to be against us, he says in verse 28, are working out together good for us. All things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Nothing can be against us. And no one can truly be against us. Why? Because God is on our side. God has been for us from eternity to eternity. God loves us from eternity to eternity. And the omnipotent God is for you in the year that lies ahead. On the coast of California, there are many redwood forests. A good number of years ago, my father retired from his employment, and we went to uh, the States for a little while, and we visited some of those great forests, Sequoia National Park. And those redwood trees are the largest trees on the face of the earth. In fact, the largest living organism is the General Sherman tree in Sequoia National Park. It has stood for centuries. And those large trees often grow just a few feet from each other. But sometimes they grow at a slight angle and they begin to touch each other. And then the bark from each tree begins to uh, overlap and fill out. And so that maybe after 50 or 100 years of the two trees touching each other, they become one tree. And you look and you see two distinct trunks growing up together into one. And they form an inseparable union. They become joined together so that they become one. And they cannot be separated. And that's just like the union that Jesus Christ has with his church. He's joined us to himself. And we have become part of his body. Somebody was once asked a question. They were talking about their security in Christ. And they said, listen, Jesus Christ promises to hold me in the hollow of his hand. And then this friend said, well, are you not afraid of slipping through one of his fingers? And he said, no, I am not because I am one of his fingers. We are part of his body. And we're in the very hand of God and we are one with Jesus Christ our Savior. And in the purposes of God from eternity to eternity, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in 
Christ Jesus. May God write his word upon our hearts today. And